Film Club podcast, a production of The Commons, the online faith space created by the South Sound Methodist Co-op. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're a bunch of people excited to watch movies and grow together through the lens of anti-racism. I'm your host, Lauren Fontanella, and today I'm joined by Pastor Alexa Eisenbarth from First Olympia. How are you today, Pastor Alexa? I am doing well, and I'm glad to be here with you, Lauren. Yeah, we are We're recording this the week of Thanksgiving. Are you in a, a holiday mood at all? I am getting there. I'm getting there. Yes, I'm hosting my family for Thanksgiving, um, and so my house is not quite prepared, but <laughs> I am excited to do some cooking and spending time with family, and I think once Thanksgiving passes, I will be uh, more eager to launch into the Christmas season, but I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> Nice. It was it was interesting because the movie we watched this week is for the December meeting. It's not like a super Christmassy movie, but it's definitely in that direction. And it's very different from the rest of the media that I'm consuming around this time. I'm not quite in the like Christmas movie mode yet. Absolutely. Yeah, we picked this movie. Um you know, imagining we'd be in December, uh, which is particularly a busy time for churches and pastors, as well as everyone who is preparing to gather with family for Christmas. And, um, and so we wanted to pick a Christmas movie, but, uh, you know, or something that was lighthearted for, for December. Mm -hmm. And so this was one that came to mind for me. I don't think I've actually seen this whole movie before this week. Um, but it's a, a movie that I know exists. And we sort of went into this trusting that there would be uh, themes that we could draw from and that the, that we could come to it with a lens of anti-racism. And we trusted that that the film would would, would serve that purpose and would, um, you know, shine some light and be fruitful for us to, to engage with, at least through this lens. And it was for me. I don't know about you, Lauren, but it definitely was for me. Yeah, I had never even heard of this film before, um, which is crazy because the amount of like, the, the way that channels on TV just play every single Christmas like media that has ever been produced every year in the month of December, it baffles me how this completely flew under my radar. Yeah, I think that's part of our anti-racism discussion. I'm one, I was wondering while I was watching it, it felt very much like the quality of it felt very much like a Hallmark movie. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, like it has that sort of lighthearted feel that Hallmark movies do. But Hallmark movies, uh, on the whole, are pretty much stories about white people, yes. right? Like there's a lot of white <laughs> stories. And so, you know, it's interesting to me that this movie does not have the popularity or even just like the frequency, right? It doesn't, it's not shown with the same frequency as, uh, as like Hallmark movies, as movies, uh, you know, Christmas movies that are like equal in quality, but, uh, but about white people and they get a lot more attention than, than a movie with black people starring as the main characters. Um, so I found that pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but think about that uh, as well. I was watching it because I was trying to evaluate, like, why haven't I heard of this before? Like, I could see, like, if it was a bad movie, but it's not. It's a pretty good movie. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, yeah, even for what would be comparable, like, let's say Hallmark movies, we're kind of comparing these two. Last Holiday has way more depth of plot and character development than let's say a typical Hallmark movie mm -hmm. um, and so yeah it was very enjoyable um, but I don't think that the audience of this film was white people 
I don't have judgment about that being true, but I have judgment about the fact that in the market, it doesn't like succeed in the same way as movies that are targeted to a predominantly white audience. Yeah. And we can talk about the production of this film and the way that it came to be made um, a little further on in the discussion. But I think that the audience initially was intended to be majority white people. Mm. uh, And that's not how it's remembered. Interesting. Well, I'd love to hear what you know about this film. Ooh, okay. Well, do you know it's a remake? I heard that when I was watching it. Uh, my friend my friend told me that, but I did not know that when I went into this movie. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to hop into a description of the film, and then we can really start talking about this. Amazing. All right. Uh, Last Holiday is a 2006 comedy starring Queen Latifah and directed by Wayne Wang. Written by Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman, the film is also an adaptation of the original 1950 film by the same name, starring Alec Guinness of Star Wars fame. (laughs) This version centers around Georgia Bird, a working class woman who's suddenly diagnosed with a rare brain condition that gives her a three-week death sentence just a few days before Christmas. Because her health care won't cover the cost of the surgery, Georgia decides to spend her remaining time and entire life savings on a luxury getaway to the Grand Hotel Poop in the former Czech Republic. Or I guess Grand Hotel Poop. I don't I don't have the accent. <laughs> there, Georgia ticks off many items from her bucket list, such as eating food by her favorite chef, base jumping, and a few luxurious spa treatments. But through a series of miscommunications, she also catches the eye of some other travelers, including the CEO of her old company, who incorrectly assume that she is also fabulously wealthy. Will Georgia's vacation be the final adventure she always dreamed of? Will she be found out by her new friends? Will she ever read Cragen's Department Store magazine? <laughs> All will be revealed in about two hours of hilarious comedic hijinks about a woman secretly prepared to die. This is Last Holiday. Thanks, Lauren. <laughs> so at the beginning of the movie, we're introduced to Georgia, and uh, and we see her both in her workplace and at home. Mm-hmm. And in her workplace, she is portrayed as this very shy and sort of hesitant person who really comes to life in her department where she has sort of some autonomy and and she uh, shares her gifts of cooking with people. Mm-hmm. And then we see her at home and she brings some of that home with her as far as the cooking. We watch her um, spending all kinds of time preparing food for uh, who we assume is her son for a child in her home. I, I had assumed it was a neighbor. A neighbor, maybe. Okay, this child in her house. Um, yeah, I was wondering why she didn't like arrange uh, childcare for him when she like ran away. <laughs> yeah, um, but <laughs> whatever. I don't think he lived there. I think okay. he came over for dinner every day. Okay, cool. So she makes uh, makes this full fat meal for this child, but for herself, only eats lean cuisines. Mm-hmm. And then we have this at the same time. We're introduced to this possibilities book that she has. There was a lot around this introduction of her that I think is uh, helpful to talk about, particularly the possibilities book. Um, so what came to mind for me was, was a couple of things. One is like the the line from the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King mm-hmm. Jr. about a dream deferred. I think it's in that that speech where he talks about a dream deferred. It's to wait, right? Justice deferred is justice denied. And it seemed like this possibilities book was representative of the dream, the life that she wanted, the life that she, uh, you know, would have if she was someone else sort of, right? Right. There was something that was deferring all of these possibilities or dreams for her. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I think um, in this, you know, zoomed in sort of like, uh, you know, we're not looking at the wider systems in this movie of the world, but in her story, she has these dreams about her own life that are being hindered in some way. Right. And if we want to talk about the, like what gets in the way, I think talking about sort of the, like the way this film came to be uh, might be enlightening. Mm. So it was an adaptation of a 1950 film that was written actually for John Candy uh, as a starring role. And then he passed away and the uh, script was scrapped. And then Queen Latifah's agent, so the story goes, picked it up and suggested it be rewritten uh, to star her and uh, have it be a vehicle for her. But if you look at the the two actors that were chosen, um, John Candy being um, a, a bigger actor, there's another sense of othering about the character if they were going to take him in that same sort of meeker, humble, shy direction that uh, some sort of infrastructural level society convention is at play stopping uh each version of the character from going after the possibilities that they dreamed of absolutely yeah so uh if i'm hearing you right so when it was written for john candy like the only barrier was his own shyness or has i don't know um because i obviously haven't read the original script Sure, sure but um i imagine it would go in a similar direction yeah, I mean, it was, you couldn't help but uh, kind of bump up against those systemic things, right, um, in the in the plot. So we're introduced very quickly to her store's manager, who treats her with such disrespect, who doesn't, who answers his phone in the middle of conversations, right, doesn't actually mm-hmm. listen to her, and says something out loud that I think is always happening under the surface, but isn't Uh, isn't expressed out loud all the time. He says, you know, the owner of the company wants to change the culture and by culture, he means money. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like this such representative thing, right? It was like a very representative sentence of the larger structure around workplaces, especially like in corporate America. But I think it also reflects and represents like how colonialism plays out in the United States or in our world, right? That there's this attempt to impose something upon other people for the sake of money, right? right? And there's no, there's no like, um, there's no mechanism for feedback or for response or for whoever it is that you're imposing this thing on to contribute to the culture of the thing, right? She had such valuable gifts to offer, right? She could cook and she was sharing this food with people and and showing them what this cookware could do for them, right? Like, which mm-hmm. would probably be more effective than the culture that the owner of this store could imagine but well it's interesting because he tries to stop her demonstration saying that like hey you're just feeding these people they come here for the samples and they don't buy anything Mm -hmm. except her department is doing the best out of every department in that entire store and he's just lying and saying that people aren't coming back and buying stuff because it's gonna he doesn't like the way that she's doing it Right, right. And I think that 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 irony is plays out throughout the movie of that there's this ego or pride in the store owner and manager of like, we know best and we have power and we're going to direct this thing at the cost of everything, but it's just to serve their own ego, Mm -hmm. right? And to you know, to, to continue to build this narrative that they know best and that they have power and can decide what happens. Even when the evidence around them shows them that 
it's not going to go well. Like there's this projection uh, at the beginning of the movie that the fourth quarter is going to be really bad, right? The profits are going to be low. Right. And he doesn't listen to that. The, the owner doesn't listen to this forecast, this prediction, because it comes from a place that he doesn't care about, right? Mm -hmm. It comes from a woman who he considers of low status and someone who doesn't have influence in his life. Right. I mean, he even comes secondhand through a second woman that he also considers inferior to himself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I thought that was really interesting of this, um, you know, the, the store manager saying the quiet part out loud. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. the, the thing that we don't say, but, um, but he made explicit that it's about money. We want to change the culture and by culture, he means money, right? That there's all this coded language. The other sort of system that we see come into place is health insurance. Right. Uh, and uh, which I just found very pertinent for the current moment, but <laughs> <laughs> one being uh, that they don't cover the surgery that she needs that will save her life. Yeah. And it also seems like it's a very survivable disease. Like if she did get the surgery, she would live. Correct. Right. You'd think that. So at least in my experience of healthcare, um, I can generally trust that if I needed life-saving surgery, they would give it to me and we'd figure out how to pay for it later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, even if insurance didn't cover it, like there would be some, I think, push or interest from the healthcare professionals I engage with to save my life. And I guess just trusting that, even if that's not true right now, uh, is a privilege I hold. And there's no advocacy for her. I guess I would there's I would trust that there would be doctors who would advocate for me with health insurance. Right. And there was just no one who even offered to like fight anything for her. It just was. And then on top of that, uh, you know, when she's like, I'm covered, like I pay my health insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, they say, well, if you're if you feel like you're being treated unfairly. <sighs> Yeah. If you feel like you're being treated unfairly, here's our appeals process paperwork. And it was like books and books of paperwork to fill out. Yeah. And then they were like, and it's going to take six months or whatever. And she's like, I have three weeks. Exactly. Right. So it's just this like insurmountable obstacle to live, right? There's just this giant obstacle to living and surviving, and there's so many of those things, right? Like there's the the corporate America, there's health insurance, there's appeals process. There are so many insurmountable obstacles. Um, and I think too, just acknowledging that uh, we find out her salary at her job at the end of the movie, mm -hmm. you know, her boss announces it to everyone uh, to put her down. But, you know, in her job working in retail, you know, corporate America, she's making not enough to thrive, right? She's like surviving and... Um, but she's not able to thrive at all. Right. These these systems around around her create insurmountable obstacles for her to survive and then thrive. Like surviving is just one question and then thriving is another. Mm -hmm. And there's just a lot of obstacles between those places. So the other piece that I had briefly mentioned was that, you know, she was feeding this young boy these full fat meals and she was eating lean cuisines. Right. And so what I saw in that throughout the movie was that these external systems that deprived her of thriving and surviving, of doing well, of enjoying, of pleasure, right? Like of any goodness in life, because there were so many obstacles there, 
those systems became internalized in her own spirit. Mm -hmm. And so she also created barriers for herself to experience pleasure, goodness, thriving. And that seemed very represented in food, but also in this possibilities book, right? Like she had dreams, like there, there are things and she loved food, right? right? So, but for some reason there were all of these barriers, barriers that she also created between herself and those things. Yeah. I mean, to the point where she has that beautiful food in her kitchen and she's not eating it. Correct, right? She has to find someone else that she thinks is deserving of the food. Mm -hmm. And she wants other people to eat it and sees it as a good thing, but doesn't see a way to like overcome her own barriers that she creates and society's barriers, right? So the other piece of this is like she has been imposed upon with the beauty standards of white America in 2006, right? And Mm -hmm. so so to eat... To eat full fat food means that she will be one step further away from achieving a beauty standard that, you know, didn't have her in mind and that says that she's not beautiful. I think what's interesting, even though, uh, or sorry, I think what's interesting is that when she actually gets to Europe and then she orders everything on the menu, Mm -hmm. um, it's not seen as like, oh, this greedy, greedy person, like, I can't believe that she would like it like gorge herself that much it's like admire that like oh you have the money to do that absolutely and it's not like she's like she she eats it all she doesn't waste it that's like that's like that part of her values doesn't change when even when she's ordering a big lavish meal Mm -hmm. um but like the difference of perceived wealth really changes the perspective on food and the culture around it in the film absolutely and like what it reveals to me, right, is that there are different social rules for the poor and the rich, mm-hmm. right? Like even perceived poor people and perceived rich people have different rules that they're, you know, that they can, you know, how they can behave in society. There are just fundamentally different rules. Oh, one of the examples of this was when she was getting a massage, she was in the spa, and the white woman who was next to her getting a massage started speaking poorly treating the masseuse poorly Mm, mm -hmm. and Georgia the character Queen Latifah plays interrupts her treating this woman poorly she says I don't like how you're talking to that woman and I don't think that if Georgia were perceived as a poor person in this scenario that that would go well for her probably not yeah like there were things she was able to do and power that she had that she didn't have when she was perceived as a poor person Mm -hmm. in the movie and it went really well for her to intervene in this moment Mm -hmm. the masseuse was really thankful for that interruption And this white woman who was getting the massage ended up being her friend and sort of took her correction as a, um, uh, she respected her correction and was sort of embarrassed by her, by her behavior rather than becoming the, you know, stereotype Karen (laughs) that she could have been, (laughs) which I think she would have if she perceived this woman as poor. Yeah. Yeah. This is unrelated to what we've been talking about, but the other scene that was really profound for me I mean, clearly I'm a pastor, but uh, there was this church scene. There was oh this church God. scene. And that scene uh, yeah. was like my worst nightmare. Absolutely. And like I, a mental breakdown and having the entire congregation improvise a music number out of it. Sure. Right. And, and I think that 
I also had this feeling of discomfort in the scene because I am, uh, because I'm white, <laughs> because I am not used to, like, it would be very uncomfortable for me if I were in a space where someone was like suddenly exclaiming and crying mm-hmm. out. But it wasn't awkward or um, uncomfortable in the scene itself. What I found really beautiful about it was that in her cries, like people responded and the entire room changed because of her pain. And although that's like mortifying to actually imagine happening for myself, it's also really profound in a way that I think is restorative uh, for her, or I hope is, that it kind of gave me an insight to why black church um, and how it functions, like why it functions the way it does, like that there is this responsiveness because the wider world does not respond to the pain of black people. Mm -hmm. And so to have anyone cry out in a service, it like is acknowledged and it, it changes the tone of the room because there is a response and a care and sort of an interest in the pain of the person who's expressing it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, over the course of the film, you see a few major changes in George's character where she comes out for shell more. And even when she does like crossing the threshold back into the reality of her life outside of uh, the hotel, she still retains more of the confidence and the like, I am going to live life and not just imagine the possibilities of what it could be. Uh, And part of that starts in this scene because I think it's the very opening scene of the film is her singing in the choir rehearsal and the director is like, you need to be louder. Like you're, you're too weak, even in this setting. And then this is where she like takes control of the entire room through her anguish. And it's like the first beginning of seizing the um the the opportunities that her diagnosis has forced her to embrace and i you know i think this question poses at the beginning or the this film poses the question uh you know what would you do if you had 3 weeks to mm-hmm. live right what would you do if you knew you were going to die soon and the thing that came up for me was like oh she wouldn't code switch anymore mm-hmm. right like she wouldn't she wouldn't um do the thing where Uh, she has to say the right thing to make white people comfortable or uh, she, she would say what she wants to say and speak in the language that she speaks in and how she would say it herself. Mm -hmm. It's just something to acknowledge. It's really, it's like a, a sad indictment on, on our culture, right. And on the, the systems we've created that we demand all of this, like all of this code switching in order to, Uh, to exist and survive in the systems we've created. Yeah, definitely. There's also this uh, interesting dynamic uh, that really became clear in the airplane. The flight attendant is trying to correct Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. So, So Georgia has stopped code switching and she's not going to continue behaving quote unquote appropriately. And so she's like, I don't have enough space, right? Like this chair was not made for me and there is not enough space here. And so she was kind of, she was pushing on the seat in front of her and the flight attendant comes over to her and calls her ma'am. Right. And she interrupts this and she's like, everyone's calling me ma'am recently. Like, what's that about? (laughs) 
people were using that term ma'am in order to pretend like they respected her while correcting her and keeping her in line to code switch, yes. right? Like keeping her in line to the expectations of white culture. And and so that was just one of the ways she's like, I like saying, right, saying the quiet part out loud of like, this is happening. People are calling me ma'am. Um, but it also made me ask the question, right? What are the ways that I pretend to respect uh, people yeah. when I am continuing to uphold like white culture. And I don't, I don't know the answer to that question in this moment, mm-hmm. but it, it's something to consider. Like, I don't, I don't think consciously I have disrespect for people. Right. But, but subconsciously, what are the ways that I'm like pretending or, you know, feigning respect when I am trying to keep people in line to, to a white culture? Like that is one way I think we uphold white supremacy. Right. The other sort of, there's a lot of dichotomies in this movie. Absolutely. Or, yeah, just uh, there's a antagonist and a <laughs> protagonist, and there's sort of these opposites of each other throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And her opposite, Georgia's opposite, ends up being Cragen, who is the owner of the store she works for. It's sort of unclear who her opposite is going to be uh, for a while, but it becomes clear once she gets to uh, to Prague that he's her opposite. And one of the sort of distinctions between them is that she commands attention. There's this moment when she comes into the dining room of the hotel and everyone sort of turns to look at her and is curious about her. Mm-hmm. When, you know, tables away, there is a senator and a congressman and this owner of this big corporation. And so it should be, right, in in the way that the world works in the minds of white people, it should be that the attention is on the powerful, on the table with all the power. And instead in this room, all of the attention turns to this woman uh, who commands attention. Yeah. She doesn't demand it, but commands it, right? (laughs) Yes. Uh, I think uh, even like even more exemplifying that is in one of the second dining scenes where um, she's made friends with the chef. And so the chef offers her a special table and even she has to turn down Craig's invitation to sit at their like table of the rich, important people. She's like, oh, sorry, the chef, like special table. I got to go sit over there. Come join me. And even though it's a smaller table, everyone is so enamored by her that they crowd in and then Craig has to very reluctantly squeeze in between people because he's not the center of attention. Absolutely. Yeah. He is so fearful of her charisma. Like the, the thing in her that draws people to her is so threatening to his own power, Mm -hmm. right? Because he demands attention from people. He demands respect, right? He, he demands those things from people and because he has to, right? Because he doesn't have the charisma piece or hasn't invested in that, right? He has money, so he doesn't have to have charisma. And, um, and so her, her charisma, the way that she sort of carries herself, the ability to command a room or command attention is such a threat to, to power. And we see that, uh, we see this power and influence question throughout the movie, but especially when she is with the senator, who is also black, a black man, mm-hmm. who is from her community, who is who is now a senator of her state, and she uses the opportunity this time to influence him. You know, she criticizes his sort of, like, him sort of selling out, exactly. right? Him advocating for the interests of 
you know, white corporate America and encourages him, influences him to, you know, help his own people get a leg up, right? Like help his own people. Uh, I can't remember the language she used, but something about getting over hurdles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about help your own people over some hurdles rather than helping these corporations get over hurdles in regulatory committees, right? Like yes. what compared comparatively, what is better for, for you and, um, and for our community. If you think you're helping our community, this is actually how you can do it. And so in this moment, right, she's not a person like he knows, I think at this point, he may not know, but for some reason, he's allowing her because I think of her charisma, really, he's allowing her to influence him. Mm-hmm. When before the only people who could influence the the senator and the congressman there were people with money, right? Like they had bought this, like expensive trip to Prague in order to to influence the congressperson and and senator, but it was like the charisma that actually made an influence. Right. I mean, it should also be noted that the reason the senator's even here is that he was invited in order to be schmoozed. Yes. And what he would have been doing is visiting his hometown and listening to the people in the the church community. And it's mentioned he has a community center that he's trying to fund, um, but it's been put on the back burner. Yeah. And like that, that's what he would be doing if he wasn't so bought in to the, um, the corporate influence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think there's this thread that emerges of Georgia being a threat. And I think this is an important thing to highlight because I think that it is true and pertinent for this moment that just by her presence and by her characteristics, right? Like by her race and by like the fact that there's this black woman from Louisiana in Prague at a fancy hotel eating delicious food and having connections with the chef that she is a threat. Mm -hmm. It's just immediate. And, uh, and Cragen is suspicious of her and he ropes in, uh, you know, one of the employees at the hotel to like investigate her just by her presence there. She is considered a threat. You know, I mean, we we see this in, uh, you know, in the Black Lives Matter movement of cops assuming that any black person, even if they're a child, right, that they are threatening. Mm -hmm. And so there's like a heightened response, a heightened sense of like fear uh, in interactions with black people on the side of the police, right? Right. She isn't a threat, right, in the way that they think she's a threat. I mean, to the point where she saves Cragen's net life at the end right. of the film. Like, that's how much not a threat she is. Absolutely, right? But she is a threat to, like, the structures. She's she's a threat to the culture of the thing. Mm-hmm. She's a threat to the upholding of white supremacy. She's a threat to to influence, right? That she, she sort of breaks the structure where you have to have money to have influence. She breaks it in this movie. So she is a threat, but not in the way that they think. And I think that's really important. And it reminded me because I'm a pastor, it reminded me <laughs> a lot of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and and the Magnificat that she sings, which is appropriate for this time of year. Mm-hmm. Mary, the mother of God in the Magnificat, talks about, uh, you know, lifting up the lowly and uh, and casting down the mighty. And the Magnificat really talks about this upside down kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God makes the, you know, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. There's this turning over of the world. I think that Georgia is a Mary character. I think that she sees a world because of this, you know, she has this 
prophetic ability in her creation of her possibilities book, right? Mm -hmm. That another world is possible. And she sort of turns everything on its head um, throughout by, you know, through the length of the movie, things are turned around by the time we get to the end. Mm -hmm. This is threatening, right? Like this is threatening to the powers that be. However, I think getting to that moment on the ledge at the end of the movie, uh, The white person, right? Like the the white guy who is her antagonist, the the sort of villain of the story, still gets redeemed. Mm-hmm. I I just found it really interesting. It made me ask the question, right? Like, how many people do black women save on the way to their own salvation? Mm-hmm. They don't go alone, and we place getting from here to there like here to the kingdom of god here to the upside down world we place the onus of that on black women or you know black trans women like people at the who have like the least power and yet their perspective is like this holistic thing where everyone gets redeemed Mm -hmm. and it's so powerful and liberative um like there and i think yeah so anyway i it gets back, I think, to the question of who the audience is of this movie. Um, and I'd love to hear kind of what you're, how you're reacting to that, Lauren. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think the audience that the movie connected with was not its intended audience, which mm. is why the film didn't necessarily do that well at the box office. Like it, it, it did fine. I don't know if it recouped its cost, but um, critically, like reception wise, it was extremely mixed hmm. because people didn't like that. They were like, oh, this is such an old, tired, like story um, that like it's yeah, it's a remake of a 1950s film. You didn't really like update the um, the plot wise. And so it doesn't fit in like 2006. But like Queen Latifah's performance was um, raved about. It was like universally like well received mm. because she brought so much charm and charisma to the character. But I don't think any of the reviews that I read talked about like the the anti-racism aspects of the film and that there's no way the 1950s version had anything to say about most of the topics that we've talked about today mm-hmm. it's like such a enriched script once you have a black character in the role that was written for a white man yeah yeah wow that's yeah that's amazing to consider I, it reminds me i mean you know in coming to this movie and trusting, right? We were just trusting that there would be, there would be themes, right? That we could draw from and conversation we could have and something we could learn without like much knowledge about it. Mm-hmm. I think we come to like sacred texts in the same way. And, you know, when I sit down to like write a sermon or, you know, at least to come to the text at first and and consider and start mulling over a particular piece of scripture, like I'm trusting every time that there's a sermon (laughs) (laughs) and like, that's not necessarily like in any other situation, right? Like if I were coming to a book, like I can't necessarily trust that there's a sermon there or trust that there's some like some nugget of wisdom or truth there's there's an, I, I don't know there, so with the bible at least in my or any sacred text right there are a lot of sacred texts you know a lot of poems are sacred texts for me in some ways right but when you come to the bible you're trusting that there's going to be something there for you the thing we also are you know acknowledging uh, at least in academia and i hope in the wider church is that i alone 
cannot see everything there is to see about a particular text mm-hmm. because I come with my own, I come with my own perspective, my own lenses, my own uh, limits to my understanding of things. And so I need other people to, to read the same text and be able to interpret it in their way, right? See it through their perspective with their lenses in order for us to get a more holistic understanding of this one piece of sacred text. Mm -hmm. And I I see that happening here, right? Like there's a text, there's a script, right? And so, you know, a white uh, actor interpreting it versus a black actor interpreting it. There are two completely different products, right? There's two completely different narratives and embodiments of the same thing because two different people are looking at it. Yeah. And I think um, part of that sort of community around the texts mm-hmm. is what's great about having uh, this club, being able to hear perspectives that I just don't pick up on because I cannot be everyone and have every experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We need each other with uh, Georgia at the end, saving Cragen, right? Sort of, sort of talking him off the ledge, right? Mm-hmm, literally. I think she communicates like, yeah, we need you too, right? Like there's not this like throwing away or casting off of him, which I think he imagines she would do. Mm-hmm. Like the threat of her having influence, of her having like dignity, right? It's not even like influence and power. It's like dignity, having like being a whole person, right? Like <laughs> right. just being like a character in the plot of things, right? Like her being a whole person, he feels is so threatening to him. That fear of white people, right? The fear of if someone else is a whole person, then how can I be? And like, that's not even a legitimate question. It's not a legitimate fear Mm -hmm. for someone else to have dignity does not actually threaten your own. No. But there's this scarcity right around it that, and I think it's subconscious. Like, I don't know that people would say it out loud, right? But, But there's a subconscious fear that if you know, that if other people have more than they do right now, then I will have less and I will, I will suffer. And it really gets in the way of any, you know, any attempts at progress. Mm -hmm. But at the end, she talks him off the ledge, which communicates to me, right, that she in her imagination of salvation, right, that in her world, like he still exists, like he's still a whole person. He still has dignity. He still has full personhood. There's not this sort of punishment of him at the end, you know, making him to then be someone who makes no money and suffers. There's not, there's not a punishment of him at the end. I think what's also significant about that scene is that even though it starts as we need to save Kragen, it's not really how it ends, even though like it ends with him coming off the ledge. Um, The scene in its entirety is not about him because so much more happens and the film really orients the climax around Georgia. It's not like she gives up the end of her own movie to someone else. Absolutely. Yes, you're absolutely correct. She still is the main character, which is important, right? It's like, yes. it's, it's important to be the main character of your own story, right? She, and she gets to be. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And all these things sort of come together in that moment. And we like remember in this moment, right? The, in this serious moment where someone is literally sitting on a ledge, that it's a rom-com, right? Like yeah, that it's still right. a rom-com, right? Like her her romantic interest has traveled the world to come find her and express his love to her. And her doctor has faxed this message across the miles to 
to change the course of her life for her. So she still gets to be the main character and it is, and it is still a rom-com. Um, it was not going to end in tragedy and we knew that, but I, you know, I think I, know, I almost all things <laughs> until about halfway maybe. through the film, I almost thought that she was really dying. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, Cragen didn't jump off the ledge, right? Like that would have been right. how a oh, tragedy that, ends, that right? Like, bad ending. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It would not have been a rom-com for sure. But yeah, so we remember, you know, we remember it's a rom-com. But yeah, I think that she, even when she's dying or thinks that she's dying, she still sees a possibility of another world being possible. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we also see this towards the end. She looks at herself in in a mirror yes. in the hotel and she says, next time we're going to laugh more and we're going to live more. And like, you know, we're not going to wait, you know, not that she like thinks, I don't know. She just is like, I, I would do this differently, mm-hmm. right? If I had another chance. And then she gets one, which is such a gift. But um, yeah, and then she uses it too. Absolutely, yeah. She uses the chance to be the main character of her own life, rather than have like white supremacy be the main character of her own life. Mm-hmm. There's also this um, sort of, I mean, it's not subtle, but uh, like there is a character who you don't see in the movie, and that character is God. Yes. Yeah, like God is this character in the movie, and she blames god for her suffering and like what you know is proclaiming right at the beginning of the movie like why 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 me why now how could this be happening to me and uh and sort of yeah is blaming god and throughout the movie kind of is like you know is this really my story right is this really the story that you've given me right i mean even when she wins all the money at the casino she it's like, oh, so like now my luck has turned. Yes. I, I can't believe that you would allow this to happen when I'm so close to the end. She's sort of engaging God as like, you know, that God is sort of playing with her life. And and she's not, she can't make sense of all of the pieces of her story throughout the movie. She can't, she keeps like questioning God. Like, I'm not sure how this makes any sense. And at the end, she again looks up at the sky and... And is like, oh, I, don't, I can't remember exactly what she says, but she she says something that sort of gets across like, oh, I understand now, right? Like, I mm-hmm. understand how all these these pieces fit together and, and, you know, and why why you, God, took me on this path that was really difficult um, and caused a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing from this movie that you want people to take away, because I suspect it's probably most of the members of our club's first time seeing it. What What is the one thing that you really want people to either pay, like, pay attention to or to look out for? So if you're a white person watching this movie, I want you to pay attention to how Georgia is portrayed as a threat and just to consider all of the ways in which she is kept from being a threat or that her her threatening presence is sort of um, managed by the people around her mm-hmm. um, or how she undoes it, how she rejects that per- that portrayal of herself. So if you're a white person, that's what I want you to look for. And if you're a person of color, as you're watching the film, I think I would say to look for all of the ways that Georgia code switches at the beginning and all of the ways she doesn't code switch after, after she finds out about her diagnosis and to just acknowledge the invisible forces around us that cause us to sort of 
manage and control our own behavior in a particular way and to just acknowledge that they exist. I think that I think that it helps to acknowledge that things are real that we feel on our bodies and souls. So I think that's what I'd like y'all to pay attention to while you're watching the movie. And then especially for white people, but I think for everyone, uh, the question that came up for me at the end of the movie as a personal reflection mm-hmm. is to consider what ways our personal or professional goals are destructive of other people. Okay. Yeah. You know, I have investment. I have great investment in the United Methodist Church, which is the largest, I think, mainline denomination in the United States. Um, and it is really white. Um, <laughs> my church is super white. And and so I have high investment in an organization that is really white and that has done harm to people of color. It's done a lot of harm to LGBTQ people. So there are ways that my professional life and personal life, right? Like my faith is personal as well, that are invested in something that's destructive to others. Mm-hmm. And it's something to consider and to um, figure out how I'm going to operate within it or or not, right? Like to, to sort of wrestle with what, what that looks like and to acknowledge that my my life might have destructive consequences that I haven't considered before. So The question is, what ways, in what ways are our personal or professional goals destructive of others? Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to the Anti-Racist Film Club podcast. If you haven't seen Last Holiday, it is currently available on Amazon Prime for no additional fee if you already have Amazon Prime. Also Paramount Plus, but I'm not sure I know anybody who has Paramount Plus. So I do. Oh, I do. I know. Fancy. Very nice. Uh, to learn more about the Anti-Racist Film Club itself, visit filmcoley.org or follow the links in our description below. This is a monthly podcast, so be sure to follow us on whatever platform you're currently listening to, such as Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Music, so you don't miss our next upload. But before we sign off, I just want to thank you, Pastor Alexa, for leading our conversation today. Absolutely. Thank you, Lauren, for, for hosting and uh, and doing all the research for around the film. You are vital to this podcast and to the life of uh, the ministry of our cooperative. So thank you, Lauren. That, thank you. I'm terrible at accepting <laughs> compliments. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, That's pretty much all we have time for today and everything I have written down. So thank you for watching and what (laughs) watching. (laughs) Thank you for listening and happy holidays.